All right, let's get started. Uh, tonight we're going to be in Genesis 22, and we're going to have to really climb in the story, and our approach is actually going to be very, uh, very similar to the approach that we had to take Sunday as we looked at the story of Joseph, where we're climbing into a story so that we can really appreciate all that's going on, all that God's been doing, all the d- uh, real specific details that are mentioned. So uh, we're going to pray towards that. I uh, hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and week away, and uh, thankful everyone's back safe. So let's, uh, let's pray as we get into this. God, I, uh, I confess to you that I'm overwhelmed at uh, what we're looking at tonight because it is so very hard. Genesis 22, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, um, is very, it's very difficult. Um, and so I, I really pray that tonight as we study, as we look at the Word, I pray that you would allow us to be attentive. Uh, I pray that you would give us discernment, give us wisdom. I pray that you would um, not let our thoughts drift. Uh, but that you would keep them right where you want them. God, we confess that as we do take seriously the call to study Scripture, as we do take seriously uh, the call to really feast on the Word, uh, we, we desire to be transformed by the renewal of our minds tonight, but we know that that will not happen unless it happens by your doing. And so we're completely dependent upon you tonight as we study the Word. Uh, again, please guide us. Um, please... Uh, Keep our minds uh, focused on what's going on uh, here in Genesis 22 and 21. And uh, I pray that this would be a time that is honoring and glorifying to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, right up front, this is a, this is a hard uh, chapter. The things that God asks Abraham to do in this chapter um, are not the normal kind of things that we're, we're used to hearing from God. Uh, we've seen a lot of ups and downs through the story of Abraham and his life and the things going on with his family. And so this is a very uh, difficult chapter, and I want to say ahead of time that I think it will challenge us, but I think that if we can see the details that are very purposely included, uh, that it will it be, while it um, is very challenging and very hard, I think it can be very encouraging. I think it can be... Uh, a real light for us uh, as we uh, find ourselves in dark places. And so um, as we do this, before we even go to chapter 22, I'd like to jump into the life of Abraham. Last, we didn't study last, we didn't have our study last week. And previous to that, we've, we've really had about 10 chapters where we've looked at the life of Abraham. We've seen ups and downs. We've seen his good days. We've seen his worst days. We've seen God do things that were unexpected. We've seen God's patience and love. Uh, again and again and again and again. And so I really want to take about 10 minutes to climb into this narrative. Moses is a phenomenal communicator. He's so good in the way that he uh, um, communicates the story that we're, we're in. And especially in chapter 22, he includes a lot of details that, you know, if you're just trying to get a single point across that this is what happened, you wouldn't include all those details. But he includes the details in such a way that, that we really climb into the story. And so I want to look at, uh, I want to take 10 minutes to kind of recap this life of Abraham because what we're seeing tonight is the absolute greatest challenge, the greatest test that Abraham experienced in his life. And so it's, it's, it's appropriate for us to go and look at the, his life that he's had. There's been, a, a really, I really think it was nine really great tests and trials that he's experienced up to this point, and this 10th one, um, is far superior to those. And so it's appropriate for us to look at those to go right 
um, to go into chapter 22 the right way. So for the last 10 chapters, we've been becoming acquainted with Abraham and his family. And as I share these things, I want you all to think back on the things that we've covered in, this, in Genesis, the, in the life of Abraham. Think about the details. Think about what you were taught as we studied that part of his life and what God was doing. So for the last 10 chapters, we've been becoming acquainted with Abraham and his family. We've seen that God has had big plans for the life of Abraham from before time began. None of it was an afterthought. In, uh, in chapter 11 of Genesis, we, we're in Babylon, and we see the, the languages were confused, and there was a dispersion of people. And it's after the dispersing of the nations from Babylon that we see God call Abraham, who was then Abram, to leave his country and his kindred and to go to a land that God would show him. God made it known to Abraham at that time uh, that he would bless Abraham that he would make his name great. Remember we talked about how God will make some men's names great for the purpose of those men being able to point to God. And so sometimes God might be doing a work in your life, oh, I don't want anyone to know who I am. I, I want to re- remain anonymous. But for some people, God will not allow you to remain anonymous because he, it, his intention is to make your name great for the purpose of you telling people about him. Um, just like John the Baptist pointed to Jesus in the same way he's kind of doing that with Abraham, making his name great so that Abraham can point to God and tell people about what God's doing. So at that time, uh, he said that he would bless Abraham, he would make his name great, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. From there, we see Abraham and Sarah journey to Egypt because of the famine. And we see God protect Abraham, though he surrendered his wife to Pharaoh. We, we know from studying that that was a very bonehead move on Abraham's part to go in and say, uh, she's my sister, you can take her into your harem. That's a, that was a horrible idea. And God protected him uh, through that. Next, we see Abraham and Lot. Lot was the freeloading nephew. Um, if y'all remember him, they separate. And shortly thereafter, Abraham is led to rescue Lot. There's some wars in the region. And Abraham, as, as his life is progressing, God leads him to, to go and rescue Lot. And it's from that, in that victory that he has, that we begin to see that God is indeed making Abraham's name great. And he goes out into a valley and has a meeting with some kings. And that's a sign that we can see Abraham's not a king, but God's making his name great to such a point that here he is meeting with some kings in a valley and discussing the issues. After this meeting, you can imagine that Abraham might be concerned, saying, you know, man, maybe I stirred the pot, maybe I conquered the wrong people, but it was a victory. And we see that after the meeting, God comforts Abraham by reminding him not to fear. He says, do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. As God's talking about how he's his shield and and that his reward will be very great, we see Abraham's thoughts shift, and Abraham says to God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. You can imagine that as he's thinking about that reward, and he's thinking about the way that God's going to bless him, he says to God, God, I don't have a child. I remain childless. And he talks about Eleazar and his house um, that would be the heir if he doesn't have a child. And God comforts Abraham with his promises. They go on a walk together. Can you imagine how comforting it would be for God, the one who made the sky, the one who hung every star in the sky, to take Abraham by the arm and go on a walk and point to the sky and say, Abraham, look up. You see all these stars? Your offspring will be as numerous as these stars if you can even count them. Can you imagine how comforting it would be to go on a walk with the Creator who encourages you in that way? They go on the walk, God points to the sky and tells them about his offspring. And he also goes on to tell them about the land that the offspring will possess, the promised land. 
God's patience and God's love continue to guide and comfort Abraham through all of these things. While God's patience was great, Abraham and Sarah's patience was not. Their patience was uh, much thinner. And uh, in the very next chapter, the, the very chapter after Abraham goes on a walk with God to look at creation and be comforted, the very next chapter, we see Abraham and Sarah devise a very godless plan uh, in which Abraham would impregnate Hagar, the Egyptian servant, in their house, and that this child would be the heir that God would use. As you can suppose, it does not go well, and we see a house divided because of the distrust they showed towards God. But God's patience and God's faithfulness continues in the next chapter as he enters into a covenant with Abraham. Abraham and Sarah are given their new names, and God makes it known to them that the covenant would be established with the child of the promise, Isaac. This is when we first see the name Isaac, not Ishmael, the child of the flesh. God keeps his promises to Abraham, and the following year appears to them at the tent to announce that they were going to have a baby. Remember the backwards baby announcement? Surprise, you're going to have a baby. It's usually the other way around, but God visits them and says, surprise, you're going to have a baby. And uh, the ups and downs continue as in that same meeting, God also reveals that he's going to wipe Sodom off of the map. Abraham's troubled because Lot, his kindred, the freeloading nephew, is in Sodom, but God continues in kindness towards Abraham, and he saves Lot and his two daughters. Abraham, having continued to increase by God's design, he's continued, his name has become greater, his household has become bigger, his riches have actually become uh, greater. Uh, They travel to the land of the Philistines. He makes the same mistake here that he made in Egypt, and he tells them that Sarah is his sister. He again surrenders her to the king's court. God, in his kindness and in his patience, returns Sarah to him unharmed, and in the process, increases his riches gives him a home in the kingdom, and makes his name even greater through that. It doesn't add up from a logical standpoint. We see God's hand all over the life of Abraham and what he's calling him to. Abraham is becoming more faithful, but God, always faithful to keep his promises, visits Sarah. She conceives and she bears Abraham a son. And here we're introduced to Isaac. Their faithless laughter is turned to blissful joy as Isaac is clearly a blessing from the Lord. By all accounts, they should not have been able to have a baby. God blesses them abundantly. Isaac there is, a, is the means in which we see their, their, their laughing, their, uh, their mocking laughter, where they kind of, ha, whatever God, that's never going to work. Here it's turned to blissful joy, as they notice that he is a, clearly a blessing from the Lord. Listen to the things that it's been made known to them about Isaac. It's been made known to them that it is through Isaac that all the promises exist. The promises that exist, the promises that we've heard, the promises for eternal, uh, eternal salvation exist through Isaac. It's through Isaac. Also, it's for the sake of this son that Abraham gave up his country and his kindred. It's ultimately for the sake of this seed, this offspring, that Abraham left his country and he left his household. It's for this son uh, that he was called in the next chapter, chapter 21, to banish the firstborn uh, Ishmael. It's for, for the sake of Abraham, for the sake of the promise that God is doing through the offspring of Isaac, he was called to banish his firstborn Israel. This son is the charter of salvation for every generation to come. It's through this son that redemption in Christ would come. This son was the mirror of eternal life, the pledge of all good things to come. 
Through his son Isaac would come unity of the people and an ushering into the kingdom of God. There is no doubt as we enter into the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22 that Isaac is greatly loved. Isaac is greatly cherished. Isaac is greatly adored. Isaac is greatly treasured by both God and Abraham. Isaac is so significant in our history. We have to understand that as we go into chapter 22. At the end of chapter 21, God gives Abraham a season of rest. And we learned last week that when God gives you a season of rest, make the most of it. Actually rest. The problem is, is that if we think we deserve a life of rest, we can never appreciate the season of rest. You become that kind of person that goes on vacation. You can't enjoy your vacation because you know it's going to end in seven days and you're bummed out about it. We know those kind of people. Some of us are those kind of people. That's me. And so uh, you, we, we learn from this that um, God gives us a blessing of seasons of rest sometimes. However, we are not called to a life of rest. We're to make the most of it, truly rest, know it's a gift. But chapter 22 brings a screeching halt to this idyllic, family intact, household settled scene. It's kind of like this Norman Rockwell uh, poster where everything's perfect and then someone just rips it in half. I mean, th- this is a very big screeching halt in chapter 22. So before I jump into chapter 22, there's two things I want us to consider before we go into this chapter. The, the, the first thing I want to consider is the very first line. It's so important that we get this before we jump into this. The very first line of chapter 22 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. This is a test. This is only a test. You know, like when you're watching your favorite show or you're listening to your favorite song on the radio and all of a sudden it's like, and then this is a test. It's only a test. This was actually an emergency. You had a blah, blah, and it gives you this information, but it was only a test. Imagine that same thing happening with this first line. This is a test. As the readers of this, it's been included for us that this is a test. It's only a test. Had God actually required the death the massacre, burning of the flesh of Isaac, which is what we're going to be getting into, this story would be outside of our realm of understanding. If God actually wanted Isaac dead, we would not be able to understand this. We have to look at this whole thing that we're about to read in terms of it is a test. God is testing Abraham. So the only way that we can understand this horrible, tragic, anguish-filled, yet redemptive story is to know ahead of time that it's a test. The second thing is that though we know it's a test, though we know everything we're about to read is a test, that God would actually not require the death of Isaac, it's been written by Moses in such a way, with such detail, with such choice words, that we are urged by the writer to climb into the life of Abraham as he's tested by God. I want, as we read, for the parents, I want you to consider your own children tonight as I read this. Consider your own children. For those who don't have children, are hoping for children, have children on the way, consider those children that you may one day have as I read this. For the children in here, for the students in here, for the young adults, for whatever you want to be called, for those, I want you to consider your parents. I want you to consider um, if your dad was Abraham, how you'd be responding in this story. What would it feel like if you were in the same situation? How would you respond? How would you view God? How is it different from how Abraham views God and responds to him? So I want you all to climb into the story. As I read this, consider all those things. And read along with me in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take 
your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. As you read these next few verses, I want you all to imagine all those things that we know about Isaac. The promise, the mirror of eternity, the salvation that will come through him, the bloodline that Christ is actually connected to him. All the importance of Isaac. As I read this, consider. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in the offering, and in, the, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The story ends well, but the heart of that story, the body of that, the content, is very hard. Maybe one of Abraham's darkest yet most redemptive moments. Uh, we're going to be spending three weeks in this chapter, the next three weeks, and it's extremely appropriate to be spending this time in this chapter as we lead up to Christmas and we see a father sacrificing his one only beloved son. It's very appropriate that we'll be in this section of Scripture. We're going to be looking at three things. We're going to be looking at Abraham's role. We're going to be looking at Isaac's role. We're going to be looking at the role that God plays and what God does and how he blesses him at the end. So tonight, we're looking at Abraham's role. 
the role that Abraham played in this crazy story that seems very confusing at, in a first read. So let's go through it a verse at a time. Verse 1. That verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Think about Abraham's thought process. Uh, or Okay, like we said before, it's made known to the reader that this is a test. I, w- I just want to reiterate this because we know it to be a test. But for Abraham, he hears the voice of God from heaven calling his name. That's how the story starts for Abraham. See, for us, the story starts with this is a test. Let's go into the story. For Abraham, the story starts with Abraham, voice of God from heaven. That's how it starts for him. He's hanging out. He's resting. He's admiring his tree that he planted, the tamarisk tree. He's drinking from the well at Beersheba. He's resting. He's hanging out with his family. He's likely just taking care of business, loving Sarah, and being a good daddy to Isaac. That's likely what he's doing as he's resting here. And on top of it all, the voice of his great, loving, patient God comes to him. And so his response is, here am I, Lord. From what he's seen from God, he, he doesn't shrink away in fear. He, 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 here am I, Lord. And he's in the middle of resting. Verse 2, I want you all to think about Abraham's thought process as he hears the words of God come out here. Take your son. That's how God starts. Take your son. Well, Abraham's going to be thinking good things at this point. Take your son. I'm sure Abraham's thinking... Uh, yeah, my son, like whenever I'm in here on a Sunday morning and someone says, hey, Scott, your daughter, uh, and whatever they're going to say, I just kind of have this instinctive kind of, I'm going to look around, oh, yeah, there she is, oh, she's cute. Yeah, what were you going to say about my daughter? That's kind of the way I respond. Here, uh, I, I can imagine um, Abraham looking across the yard and saying, oh, yeah, there's my son. He's, uh, he's helping his mom out. That's a good boy. What, what about him, God? My son, t- take your son. Then the next words, God says, and I want you all to see the drama of Moses using these particular words to bring you into the story. God, take your son. Next, your only son. You can almost sense Abraham remembering as he sent Ishmael out, the, out of the house. You can almost think of Abraham banishing Ishmael on account of this son. And you can almost picture Abraham saying, Yes, Lord, indeed, this is my only son. He is the only hope for offspring and heritage and progeny and all these promises that you've said. Indeed, my son, my only son. Yes, Lord, he is my only son. Then he says, Isaac. It it sounds like God's just kind of being repetitive and redundant. He's not. There's this very purposeful. He says, Isaac. I was thinking about, I was trying to sit there, okay, Abraham's hearing this. Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Uh, As I thought about that, I pictured Abraham hearing God's voice say the name of his son, Isaac. And I can imagine Abraham remembering the first time that he heard the Lord say his son's name. When he said, you shall have a son and his name shall be Isaac. I'm, I'm picturing Abraham thinking about the first time hearing the Lord say the name of his son, must have been sweet to him at that point. He's resting. It's a good thing. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. And then he even drives it further. Whom you love. Whom you love. He reminds Abraham of the love that he has for his son. Again, you can picture Abraham saying, Oh Lord, no doubt I love this boy. He's such a sign of your faithfulness and there's such a hope for the future in him. And we've already made a million memories together. Indeed, I love him greatly. God, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. 
and go to the land of Moriah. You can almost picture Abraham saying, oh God, a three-day journey with my son. Great. That's wonderful. What are we going to do? Then the tone completely changes. I want you all to see how incredible this picture is. The tone completely changes, and he hears words from God's mouth that honestly, they seem contrary to who God is. It's very hard to understand this if you're sitting in this listening, yes, God, my son, my only son, Isaac, I love him, we're going to go on a trip. And then you hear these words come out of God's mouth that seem backwards, but they're not backwards at all. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, offer him as a burnt offering. At this point, my response would have been confusion. I mean, what would your response have been? Think about that. My response would have been confusion. Like, God, what? Fear? God, there's no way I can do that. I'd rather end my own life than than end my child's life. What in the world? That's crazy talk. That would have been my response. Not only must my only loved son die, but he must die as a burnt offering? That's not a, a... the pleasant thing, and even worse, it is by my hand, his father's hand, that he shall be bound, slain, cut into pieces, and burnt on the altar. This is a, a grave situation. It's staggering. There is no doubt that this is the greatest test Abraham would face. One commentator states uh, that Abraham, his response, he states this. He says, I'm with my own hand to destroy all that makes life valuable to me. And as I do so, I'm to love and worship him who commands the sacrifice. God's commanding the sacrifice, and it's, and it's as though Abraham's saying, with my own hand, I'm supposed to end this source of joy, this promise, this fulfillment of promises, and in doing so, I'm supposed to love and worship. Sacrifice is a, is a part of worship, the one who's commanding me to do this. It just seems like a horrible situation. It seems like a, real, a catch-22. There's no winners here is what it seems like. However, Abraham's response is different from the expectation. Look at verse 3. He rose early in the morning. Can you imagine? He rose early. He got up early. I would have slept in. I would have slept for four days. He rose early in the morning. This is a pattern that we've seen in the life of Abraham because of his faithfulness. And I want you all to be mindful of the fact that he's faithful because God has made him faithful. God has brought him through certain things so that he can see through the harder, harder, harder things that he can trust God. He rose early. This is a pattern that we have seen in Abraham's life. While others drag their feet on the road to obedience, which is actually disobedience, delayed obedience, Abraham wastes no time delaying. He rises early. He saddles the donkey. He gets two servants and Isaac, and he even cuts the wood himself for the offering. Spurgeon makes a comment that... uh, he was a sheik and a mighty man in his camp, but he became a wood splitter, thinking no work menial if done for God, and reckoning the work probably too sacred for other hands. He was not putting it off on someone else. And interestingly, God does not mention a time frame in his command. God didn't say right now or tomorrow morning. God didn't mention a time. But Abraham knows what he's supposed to do. Uh, a part of Scripture says, if you know the right thing to do and you do not do it for you, it is a sin. Here... God doesn't mention a time frame, yet Abraham still rises early the very next morning. I probably would have done the whole, I'm going to pray about it for a few weeks. Sometimes we use, I'm going to pray about it, 
as disobedience. You may know the right thing. Ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about that. Mm. Uh, I just don't need to pray about that. that. That'd be hard. I think I'm going to pray about it more. And we put it off and put it off and put it off. And we cloak it in righteousness by saying we're being prayerful about it when really we're just being disobedient because we know the right thing to do. The voice of God opened up from heaven and said, do this. And Abraham said, okay. And he rose early in the next morning. I want you all to see this picture. Three days they traveled. They traveled for three days. That's three days that he could have turned around and said, forget this. He's traveling with his son. I don't know, this last, uh, the, over the Thanksgiving holiday, I got to spend more time with my two daughters, just uninterrupted time. There was, at one point, I think I just sat and held Olivia for like two hours. I didn't do anything else. I just sat and held her, and she smiled, and pretty sure she said, Dad, I'm not sure. But, uh, but that time, you, you know, it, it was sweet. It was sweet, and you got used to being with each other, and, and it was interesting because I came back to work, and uh, my wife called and, and said, because I left before anyone woke up, and, um, and she said that Ella woke up and said, where's Daddy? And Mommy said, He's at work. And she said, well, can we go to work? And, and I was like, oh, that's so good. They were traveling together. They were spending time together. They had three days of just daddy-son time to hang out. They didn't turn around. Three days. They go up to the mountain. God makes it known to them the place. Isaac is carrying the wood that will be his very end. Isaac is carrying this wood. Picture Abraham saying, here, Isaac, I need you to carry this. All the while knowing that's going to be his end. Um, Abraham's carrying the fire that he is to burn his son with and the knife that he is to use to slay his son. As they walk, the drama mounts. Can you imagine Isaac, so loved, so treasured, so precious, looks up at one point and says, Daddy, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That would be the point in the movie where everyone starts crying and their hearts drop. I mean, it is this dramatic, Daddy, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And it's interesting because we don't see Abraham just fall all over himself and fall, oh, I'm sorry, son. He doesn't do that. What does he do? His response is, son, God will provide. It is a perfect example of sometimes in a very hard situation when you absolutely want to fall apart, that God gives you what you need to be able to lead your children the way they need to be led. And here God says, you, you tell him that I'll provide. You know who I am. And Abraham says, son, God will provide. When they got to the spot where it was all supposed to go down, they had to gather up the stones. Like they got there and it wasn't like, okay, we're here, let's get this over with. They had to go find stones and they had to build the altar. And after they built the altar, they had to put the wood in order on the altar. And then, this is the hard part, because I'm asking you to imagine this and climb into this, but then the unimaginable happens. The very next thing that happens is Isaac, uh, uh, Abraham binds Isaac. He takes his son and, and he ties him up. And he places him on the altar. Interestingly, and we're going to talk more about this when we look at Isaac's role, but Isaac is at least 15 some commentators would say he, he may even be in his early 30s, but he's kind of in his prime. Abraham is old man River. You know, he could push him over, break his hip, be done with it, run away. What we see here is a perfect example of submission and trust of his father and a really a seeing of the big picture. He doesn't resist. He ties him up and he puts him on the altar. Y'all, this actually happened. 
Like sometimes we read these old stories as, as if they're just old stories, like they're fables, like faraway land, long, long ago. This actually happened. Father Abraham took the child of the promise in which the only promises that anyone in this room has exist because of what God was doing through Isaac. And he had him at one point on an altar to, to offer him as a burnt sacrifice, a bloody, messy act of worship that was very hard to comprehend. He was there on the altar. And then as he lays him up there, he takes out his knife to run his son through, to kill him, to slay him with a knife. This is a grave moment. Abraham has made a decision. He has made in his mind, I'm going to do this. This will happen. While making that decision, he said, God will provide, no doubt. God will provide, so I will do this. And you see Isaac making a similar decision, saying, I I will not resist. God will provide. I believe my father who's led me well. Now we know that God intercedes. We know there is blessing from God. We know that the story ends well. But what was the purpose of this whole test? This was a very hard test. As y'all talk to your kids, as parents talk to your kids about this, it's a hard thing to talk about because the content of what happened, why would God tell him to do that? What's the point of the test? Is God just being cruel? Is he just exercising, flexing some divine muscle? Is this some divine hidden camera show where God jumps out, of the, at the end of the, jumps out of the bushes at the end with a goat or a ram or whatever and says, hey, you don't really have to do that. God's not being cruel. This is not pointless. There's a real point to this. We're going to talk about a few of those for the remaining of our time. One thing I want to point out as we talk about the point here, why the test? Why something so grave and so seemingly backwards from who God is to say, kill your son? It doesn't add up. Why would he do this? I want to point out that seven out of our last ten sermons that have been here on a Sunday morning, um, and if you haven't been here, I encourage you to go online. They're all online. You can listen to them. You can podcast them. We've made like 18 ways that you can get the sermons. There's no reason you shouldn't be listening to these sermons. Seven out of the last ten sermons are on trial, testing, hard seasons of life, and why. Seven out of the last ten sermons here. What that tells me is that either there are a lot of people here going through very hard trials that are needing to be equipped so that they can get through them, or there's a lot of people here being prepared for future seasons of trial. And I would, I would offer that the last thing I just said, prepared for seasons of trial, is that that's kind of a guarantee, and we're going to see that uh, here as well. But seven out of the last ten sermons have been on that. Remember uh, Cardwell's sermon from James. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing, the test, just like this test Abraham was in the middle of, the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. What's another word for steadfastness? Perseverance, staying power. It produces someone who doesn't crumble when God calls you to something hard. Produces steadfastness and staying power. The point here is it's not much different. That's what's happening in this story with Abraham. Now, it's hard to understand, but here's some things that we must get. The sacrifice that God was seeking was not actually the dead body of Isaac. That's not the sacrifice he was seeking. He was seeking the wholehearted devotion of Abraham and Isaac to an extent. We'll talk about that next week. But what he was seeking was the devotion of the living soul, not the product of a a dead, burned sacrifice. This is a, it's a lifelong thing. That's what God's seeking. God brought him, I mean, picture this. He brought him through these unbelievable trials. We, we went over the whole life of Abraham as we started. 
ups and downs, all kinds of crazy things. He learned things. His faith grew. But God brings us, uh, brings him to a point where he, he's seeking his devotion, the devotion of the living soul of Abraham, not just a dead offering. That was the point. The point was not to actually kill Isaac. We know it was a test because God was seeking the sacrifice of a truly devoted soul that would say, I'll give you anything, God. Whatever you call me to, I will do that. I won't hold anything back. Really, you won't hold anything back? What about your son? Even my son, God. I'm so devoted to you. I so trust you that you, you name it. You, you, you make the call. I'll go there. I'll do what you need me to do. That's what he's wanting. The devotion of the living soul. God meant Abraham to yield Isaac truly to him. Like God's intention was that Abraham would really yield Isaac to God. To arrive at the consciousness that Isaac more truly belonged to God than to him, his father. Uh, Who's this a challenge to? It's a challenge to the parents who are sitting here. A challenge to the parents. If you truly believe that your child is more God's than yours, it will change the way that you spend your time with your child. You're called to lead your child. You're called to uh, make disciples. You're called to instruct them. You're called not to provoke them to anger. If you truly believe that your child is God's more than it is yours, it's going to change the way you interact with your child. You're, you're going to be going before God, and you're going to be saying, God, just as Abraham was fully devoted to you and realized that Isaac was more yours than his, so much so that he would, he would, he would trust you completely, I want to do that with my kids, God. What do you want me to do? And the result is not just going to be abandoning your child. The result is going to be absolutely feasting on this word and being in a covenant with people so that you know how to raise your child, so that you know how to respond to hard questions, so that you know when they come home from school and there's madness that they've engaged all day, every day, that you know how to love them and encourage them and warn them and guide them. That's what it means to be fully surrendered, to say, this child is more God's than mine. This, God has entrusted me to the raising of this child, but all the while, I, I trust God completely. And to say you trust God completely and not look at what the Word says about how to raise your child is to not trust God at all. If you truly trust the Lord, you'll engage this Word, you'll be a part of a body of believers who have covenanted together to raise children. When we have like a baby dedication up here, that's what it is. We're saying, with you, we stand, and we're standing together saying, these children are God's more than they are ours, so we want to be absolute ama- great stewards and how we raise them, and how we love them, and how we encourage them. It's not just words. It's not empty words. We're not just windbags trying to have a cute program. It's, it's very, very real. So the challenge to parents is pretty big. And then the possession of the promises of God are more worth preserving than life itself. Possessing God's promises are more valuable than possessing breath. God's promises are more valuable than the ability to continue living. Every martyr has learned this lesson. At some point for some of the martyrs that, that we know of, uh, that, that we've read about, that, that, have, that are part of our Christian heritage, at some point they have been tested maybe to turn from the Lord, to renounce their faith, to say that they believe in another God. And what each of those martyrs had to come to a point of, of truly believing is that the promises that I have because of my relationship with Christ that connects me to God is far more important to me than, than breath, than life. And, and I know that even if you kill me, even if you take my life, you do not take my promises that I have in God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not, 
nothing. In Romans 8, it's, it's beautifully just a long list of nothing. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And so the possession of the promises of God are more worth preserving than life itself. However painful your condition is, and I, and I want y'all, I'm, I'm aware of some of the junk that people sitting in here right now have been through. It's very real. And I want you to know that however painful your condition is, God's intention is not to injure you, but to advance you. To say it another way, using the words from the sermon on Sunday, that thing in your life that may seem to be for the worst, that same thing, that same event, the same scenario, God's using for your best, for your good. God's desire is not that we suffer pain, but that we learn obedience. His desire isn't just to mess with us. He's not, I mean, what was it? Uh, um, the Jim Carrey movie, the Almighty something or other. Uh, yeah, when he's like, God, God's on an ant pile with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant, and he's burning my feelers off, just messing with me. That's not what this is. That's not at all what this is. God does not desire that you should suffer, but that we learn obedience, and that we be brought to that true and thorough confidence in him, which may fit us to fulfill his loving purposes. We cannot know the grace of God. We cannot experience the abundant provision he has made for the weak and sinful men until we have climbed the mount of sacrifice and are able to commit ourselves wholly to him. That's not mine. That was out of the Spotter's Bible commentary, and it is rich. To climb the mount of sacrifice, to be brought through this trial, God's doing that because your created purpose, the reason you exist, the reason you're on this earth, is to glorify God. He is for all believers, you are in a process of sanctification. You're being sanctified. You're being made holy. You're set apart. You are being conformed to the image of Christ every day. It's interesting because I was thinking about like when, when I first got married and, and you know, sort of, oh, over time, you'll figure it out. It takes time. It just takes time. And, uh, you become a parent. Oh, over time, man, you'll just figure it out over time. It's, main, it's true, but that's not... That's, they didn't include all the details. The reason that it's true that over time you figure things out is because over time there's a number of trials that take place that help you to figure it out. So, yeah, o- over time things, things will work out because of the trials that you're brought through as your faith is strengthened. His aim is that we glorify Him. And so the design for God in our lives is not that we would suffer, not that He would inflict pain for no reason whatsoever, but that through the hardest, darkest, stormiest seasons we could ever imagine, that God is conforming us to the image of the Son. We're being brought through a process of sanctification, made holy, and that we are brought to a point like Abraham was brought to where he says, this seems nuts, but I trust you, God. I believe that if all that's left when this is said and done is a burnt pile of ashes that used to be my son, that you could bring life out of it. There, that's the only way that this is going to happen, that you'll sustain his life. I, I believe that. In the same way that the first man who ever breathed was made out of a pile of dust. You breathe life into him. And I believe that you can do that. God's bringing us to a point where because we're created for his glory, he will take us through these trials and these tests to refine our faith and grow us and move us forward and bring us to a greater obedience for his glory. Personally, I desperately want to believe the fable that as long as I live for Jesus and live a good Christian life, that... um, that things will just slowly get better and better and better and better. I really want to believe this. I want to embrace this so bad, but I can't. That things will get better and better and better until finally at the end of my life, all is calm, riches are abundant, family is abundant and healthy, and I get to die in my sleep. 
that's what I want to embrace. That it's just going to happen so good. And as long as I just keep, I stay in the ministry and I do what I can. And I love my wife and I raise my kids. That eventually I'll be rich with a big family and no pain and die in my sleep. If you just follow Jesus, it'll all work out. I so want to believe this, but I'm a child of God. I'm a new creation in Christ. And the Spirit tells me that this is myth, it is fable, it is fiction, and it is fantasy. This is what I mean. If it is through trial that my faith is made greater, catch this, because it's really, it's odd, because it's like so uh, discomforting and so comforting. It, it's, it's this weird thing. If, 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 uh, if it's through trial that my faith is made greater, then the next trial must be worse than the last one if my faith is going to be made even greater. I hope that's comforting to everybody. Because what I'm saying is that if my faith was at this point, my faith is truly growing throughout the process of my life. I'm being brought through a process of sanctification. One day I'll be in a glorified state in eternity in which there's no sin that exists. And I'll be able to truly see God as he is and worship him for eternity as I eternally take in how wonderful he is. That right now, if my faith was here, and I was brought through this trial, and then my faith is here, in order for my faith to get up here, the trial's got to get bigger too. They're going to increase. The, as faith increases, so the size, the magnitude, the weight, the burden of the trial may also increase. It's very likely. That's what I've seen so far in Abraham's life. Um... In the test Abraham faced, there was a predicament. The predicament was that if he was obedient, what did it seem like he would lose? Abraham faced a test. God says, slaughter your son. I'll offer him as a burnt sacrifice. If Abraham does that, what does he lose? His son. The promise. The blessing. And it seems like a predicament, like it's a catch-22, like it doesn't work out. But that is not how obedience and blessing work. Spurgeon made a beautiful observation. He says this, Obedience can never endanger blessings, for commands are never in real conflict with promises. God can raise up Isaac and fulfill his own decree. I'm going to say that again. Obedience to what God calls you to do can never actually endanger the blessings that you have in God. The reason for that is that God will never command you to do something outside of his promise. And even in this situation with dire straits, and it just seems like, well, if you kill the child of the promise, you lose the promise. If you kill the child of blessing, you lose the blessing. If you kill the child through whom Christ will come, don't you lose Christ? And what it's saying here is that that's not how obedience and blessing works. You stay obedient to what the Lord calls you to, and the blessing remains intact because God is trusted. God can be trusted. God was implicitly trusted here in such that he could raise up Isaac and fulfill his own decree. Uh, we have to know the weight of the word. If I'm going to, again, we said this a few weeks ago, if I'm going to trust God's promises, I have to know God's promises. We have to dig into this word and know what God's plan is. We've got to know what he wants. We've got to know what his eternal viewpoint is as we move forward. We have, if we say we're children of the promise, we are children who should be fueled by God's promises. And if indeed we are fueled by God's promises, we must know his promises. It doesn't make sense that we would abandon them and not dig into this word and be a part of a body and be in accountability and be searchable and all these other things that are important to uh, embracing his promises. I want to close with a few comments from Spurgeon. 
his notes on this, that this is one of the most, there's people who, are, who aren't religious and don't believe in Jesus and don't believe in God who know this story. This story is, is, is historical. People know it all over the world. They've heard it. And um, because of that, there, I mean, the commentators and the commentaries and the books and the sermons on this are so abundant. As I was listening to a bunch of things and reading a bunch of things, I'm thinking, man, I just want to give people a book because it says it's so much better than what I could express. So because of that, I want to end with some comments that they're going to be disturbing and they're going to be comforting. That's, that's a walk of faith. We're disturbed and we're further comforted. We're brought through trial. Our faith increases. We're brought through more trial. Our faith increases and you're refined over time. And it says this. <laughs> these are Spurgeon's observations. Comforting and terrifying. God doth not put heavy burdens upon weak shoulders. He doesn't put heavy burdens on weak shoulders. What he's saying is that a burden that's fit for a 60-year-old man who's faithfully served in ministry for 40 years and seen the ups and downs and remained resilient and faithful is not a burden that's also rightly fit for an 8-year-old. So he's saying that God doth not put burden, a heavy burden on weak shoulders. Another way to say that is that God's never going to call you to something that he has not equipped you to be able to go through, to get through. And that's a real comfort in those seasons where you're thinking, there's no way I can get through this. There's no way this works. God has not put a heavy burden on weak shoulders. If he's placed a heavy burden in your life, it means he's given you heavy shoulders. And while it may not be easy, it is a trial that he will use to, like the last seven out of ten sermons have said, to make you more steadfastness, to give you staying power, to when your heart is troubled, to believe, to help you when your heart is troubled. It's not coincidence that seven out of the last ten sermons have been on that. So I'm hoping y'all are embracing that in God's providential hand, which was in the last sermon. God does not put heavy burdens upon weak shoulders. He educates our faith. We learn more in our faith. Our faith is something that increases and he educates it, testing it by trials, which increase little by little in proportion as our faith increases. So it turns out over, over decades, over centuries, Christian men and women have gotten the same concept that faith increases and some of those trials increase and sometimes that the trial will be greater. That, what that does is it helps you to not live inside the fairy tale world that Everything will be okay tomorrow. This, it'll all go away. All the bad things will go away. No, I, I want to increase in faith. And so that tells me that I'm also welcoming trial. Testing by trials which increase little by little in proportion as our faith has increased. And then he says this, expect then, beloved. It sounds so sarcastic when he says beloved. Expect then, lovely people that I love, as I hit you in the face with this. Your trials, expect your trials to multiply as you proceed towards heaven. Do not think as you grow in grace, the path will become smoother beneath your feet and the heavens serener above your heads. On the contrary, reckon that as God gives you greater skill as a soldier, he will likely send you upon more arduous enterprises. If we live in this wartime mentality that we've talked about before, and we're soldiers and we're a good soldier for Christ, that as he increases your abilities and he increases your skill, and you have greater skill as a soldier, it's likely that he's not going to send you on the pansy mission, but he will send you on something more arduous, something that's a greater task. And then he ends with this, which is so lovely. Let this warn us that we are never to reckon upon rest from tribulation this side of the grave. The promise is, until you die, there will be tribulation. Don't think otherwise. And then he, he closes it with a zinger. Expect that perhaps your last battle will be the worst. 
and the fiercest charge of the foe may be reserved for the end of the day. You ever go home and you're like, oh, finally the day's over. And you sit down and like something explodes or something or a kid breaks their arm or something. It's like that, oh, it was the end of the day. I was almost done. It's been such a hard day. What he's saying is that our life and faith is, is such that as we progress, as we grow in our faith, if, if truly desiring to be transformed to the image of Christ and to glorify God, that he might be more glorified, that your promises, those promises would be made abundant in your life, that you would really be able to uh, embrace your call, that at the end of your life, the greatest trial may come last. I, I'm, I grew up hearing that if you live a good Christian life, at the end, the trials will get lesser and lesser until you're just an old man with a bunch of grandkids and you fall asleep in your chair with your blanket on your legs. That, that's like the kind of picture that was painted for me. What this is saying is that um, over time it'll get harder and the last battle may very well be the hardest one. At the end of the day, the enemy that comes at you may be the, the, most, the hardest enemy ever. But God does not lay a heavy burden upon weak shoulders. His, his aim is not that you suffer for the sake of just suffering. He's building you up. He's increasing your faith. He's making you stronger and he's making it um, take place in such a way that, that he's, glor- he's glorified in. It's not for your glory. It's so that you would live in a way that he is more glorified and your faith is strengthened and you become much more resilient. You no, you no longer have that inner soul, uh, that inner voice of your soul that frets and whines and complains at every last thing. Your soul has a voice that God alone can hear and you've got to wonder, what does he hear all the time? Maybe I can be quiet on the outside, but on the inside you may be vexed and frustrated and angry all the time. And God says there, there's over the trials, your faithfulness increases, and those things will go away until you can get to a point like, like what we see here with Abraham, where he's challenged with the, the hardest test that we've seen. And we don't see him whining and saying, or trying to reason with God, or trying to put it off and waste some time, or pray about it for weeks, um, or act like he forgot what God called him to, but he rose early the next morning, and he went and did everything that God told him to do. And it was not for the purpose of hurting him. It was for the purpose of growing him and moving him forward in his faith. Um, heavy study. We're going to be in this for the next two weeks as well. We're going to look at the role of Isaac uh, next week. And then after that, we're going to look at God's role and how God is so huge in this and, and hugely blessed them uh, for a work that he <laughs> did in them uh, that was not on their own. Um, are there any other questions or, or <laughs> other questions? Are there any questions, period, or or comments, or thoughts, or anything? I'll make a comment that I was talking about Isaac, and God was next to uh, Wednesday, and I was kind of focused on Abraham. Imagine how Abraham felt when he saw this man. Hmm. And how Isaac now felt. I mean, have you ever seen a ram? I mean, I, I've seen a doe cross the fence, a little, little deer.
Any you know, questions or comments or thoughts? Let's pray. Uh, God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you. Uh, I thank you that when we are faithless, that you are faithful. But I also thank you that you take us through things in life that make it where our, our faith can grow. As odd as it sounds, God, I thank you for the trials and I thank you for the tests that you brought us through. And I say that carefully because I know some people in this room have been through some very hard things. But God, I truly believe that not a single one of them was for nothing. That not a single one of the trials or tests that have been experienced by the people sitting here have been for nothing or just for, uh, to, to pierce them and hurt them. God, I, I truly believe what you, what you said tonight. Uh, that through those things that our, our faith grows. Um, I am so thankful for the sacrifice that you uh, provided uh, for us um, and for your glory uh, in Christ. And uh, I do pray that as we leave here, as we continue these next few weeks in this season, when we can be so distracted uh, by our financial trials or our uh, lack of time to get things done or just how tired we are or we're sick or... Um, you know, family things, wh- whatever it might be. Uh, in this season, when we can be so distracted and unseated by those things. I pray that you would give us a resilience to move forward in those things faithfully, uh, truly trusting you and knowing the unbelievable promises and, and beauty, uh, eternal beauties that we have uh, in Christ. Um, God, I thank you uh, for the work that you've done that, that none of us deserve. I thank you for providing a sacrifice for Abraham when, when he didn't really deserve one. But you're faithful and you're good and you're kind and you're patient. And you show that again and again. God, we, we desire to live for you. We desire to honor you. We desire to live according to our created purpose that you created us for your glory. And I pray that you would help us do that as we leave. And I pray that as we see narratives like this and stories of real people, our real people in our heritage and our past, uh, we see these stories. I pray that they would be fuel for us um, as we see truly how great you are again and again and again and again. God, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.